the first 16 verses of John chapter 5 together. All right? After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches or porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, whoever then first after. The stirring of the waters stepped in, was made well from the water's disease, which he was afflicted. We'll explain verses 3 and 4 here in just a few minutes. Verse 5 says, A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, and he said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming and other steps down before me, Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away. Well, there was a crowd in that place, and afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. This passage just screams to me the wonderful attribute of God's mercy. And certainly God's mercy demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. This sermon this morning is not going to be particularly encouraging. I hope by the end we'll find a great measure of encouragement, though, in the reality of having had personally enjoyed the mercy of God to those of us who know the Lord Jesus, and that you would find ongoing encouragement in understanding that Jesus remains merciful to all who remain in unbelief, offering his hand of spiritual help as long as they live. But this sermon is really about enemies of the gospel, who they are and what they say and how they act. But we know that God is merciful to both the saved and the unsaved. To the religious, unsaved, Christ extends the mercy of God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. To the saved, Christ is simply and profoundly and continually and eternally the very mercy of God. 
The religious men who remain in unbelief are reminded by Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, that the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression of sins is their opportunity. To those who accept salvation through Christ, Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9, therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for thousands and generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Samuel, Samuel also reminds the believer to the merciful, God will show himself merciful. And the psalmist instructs the Christian by saying all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his commandments and his testimonies. In the New Testament, we're reminded of the mercy of God in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where Paul says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. So the Lord is merciful, to be sure. He's always extending his mercy to the unsaved and is the mercy of God to the saved. Psalm 149 reminds us that the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all of his works. We're reminded by the prophet that the Lord allows the rain to fall and the sun to shine both on belief and unbelief. God is just merciful. The Lord is mercy. It has been eternally and immutably true of his person. It is God's heart to withhold judgment as long as possible while offering religious unbelief the daily opportunity to turn from their sin and their traditions and trust in the sufficiency of Christ alone to save. We were reminded last time that we were together that Jesus' first public miracle was performed among his own hometown friends and family. The second sign mentioned by John in this gospel at the end of chapter 4 was performed among the same people only at the beginning of his 16-month Galilean ministry. We learned last week that Jesus knew that he was a prophet who had not been received well or given honor in his own country. We learned from John 1 that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. The people of Jesus' hometown, the souls of his own countrymen, were people steeped in religious unbelief. Religious unbelief is so attractive, it's so influential, that when the very mercy of God in Christ is gifted to it, in person, unbelief remains blind to mercy and its offer and influence. Honestly, friends, religious unbelief doesn't need the mercy of God because they remain convinced their traditions and adherence to them brings its own protection from the very wrath of God. They believe loyalty to their good works and traditions actually is enough to appease the wrath of God against them. 
For the merely religious, clinging to traditions is salvation. If you ponder the way religion functions, good works within a religious context is or are their own mercy. In our passage today, Jesus performs his next miracle among religious unbelief. This time, the sign is not performed in the presence of his family and friends and own townspeople, but in the city of Jerusalem where there's already a growing distaste for the presence of Jesus. This passage must be about God's mercy. We remember the whole time for John, uh, his purpose for writing found in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that he would do these signs and speak these words that people might what? That people might believe. The Lord Jesus is found at this feast in Jerusalem doing another sign and speaking more words so that people would believe and this time nobody does. When we truly understand what's happening in this passage, our collective hearts are going to break. Jesus' miracle of mercy actually ignites an extreme hatred towards him among those who remain dedicated to religious tradition. The story demonstrates to all of us that unbelief of all kinds especially religious unbelief, will forever remain enemies of our Savior and his exclusive claims and offer of salvation by grace, free from good works or any tradition. But before I get ahead of myself, let's dive into this passage and divide it into three simple sections. First of all, I'd like to discuss the very mercy of Jesus. The very mercy of Jesus hopefully leading us to remain merciful in the face of religious unbelief. You see, folks, in the passage before us that we've already read, Jesus dispositionally never becomes merciless regardless of the persecution that he received from religious unbelief. Jesus remains kind and compassionate and, of course, truthful. It's so important for us to realize something of Jesus' perfect obedience as we did last time that we were together. Remember, the obedience of Jesus is never merely for the sake of obedience. It was necessary for sure in order to glorify his Father, but his obedience was towards bringing glory to God himself so that he could pursue the preaching of the gospel. Christ's obedience is always on mission, as we learned last week, and ours should be as well. I just want to stop for a moment and just ask you a quick question without a raising of hands. Did you pray for someone in your life that's unsaved this week that you might have the opportunity to be a gospel witness to them? I hope you did. If you didn't, your obedience, your growth in holiness is really unto itself and it's off mission. If we're truly obedient, we will be burdened as our Savior was, who was obedient, for the desperate need of men to know Christ. 
In our passage, we find Jesus in Jerusalem. Last week, we find him just stepping out into his Galilean ministry that was to last for 16 months. Why all of a sudden in Jerusalem, on the heels of commencing this 16-month journey? Well, Jesus is a perfect law keeper. He's there, as verse 1 states, for a feast of the Jews. He's bouncing up to Jerusalem from Galilee in obedience to the ceremonial law of God as given to Moses. It's most likely the Feast of Tabernacles where the Jews would celebrate the Lord's faithfulness to them during their wilderness wanderings. Nonetheless, we need to be reminded that the mercy of Jesus and his obedience blended together remain on mission at all times. And as believers, this should be our heart as well. While we obey our hearts to be merciful to unbelief, remain just as intentional. Regardless of the outcome or success, both virtues of obedience and mercy are lived by grace towards unbelief. As is typical, Jesus is among great crowds of people, and he mercifully finds his way to those who are most desperate. By the sheep gate, there's a pool, our text says, called Bethesda, and it has five porches. The sheep gate is where the lambs would be brought in that would be led to slaughter at Passover celebration. They're brought into the city through this gate, and this pool is nearby that gate, and it has a unique usage. There were pools all over the city of Jerusalem, pools for cleansing, pools for cooling, and pools just for washing animals before they would be brought to sacrifice. This pool was for healing. History tells us, by way of religious superstition, that this pool was visited at times by angels. When the angels came, religious tradition would say the waters would be stirred. At the moment the waters moved, the sick would jump in and they would be healed. Well, the pool's for real. You can still see part of it in the city at this time as it's been excavated since the temple's destruction in AD 70. The sick crowding there for the sake of healing, well, that's real too. But most of verses 3 and 4 is added by Jewish scribes. Older manuscripts found since the writing of the New American Standard or the King James Version don't have these verses included. It's understood scribes added the information as true, but only of religious superstition and not literal occurrence. Say, so what's going on here? Most reliable sources believe that this pool was fed by a warm spring that would bubble at random times. Its warmth and massaging from the bubbling would have a soothing and healing effect on many who were chronically ill. For many who would have had orthopedic surgeries among us or muscle tears, you enjoy the warmth of massaging waters of hot tubs at times, don't you? Don't we? <laughs> at our places of therapy. And they're really nice, quite frankly. And they do soothe, and they do certainly feel like they're healing something. This is the situation at the pool of Bethesda. People go there to enjoy the warm waters when the 
they bubble from the springs and they get, out, they get out feeling much better than when they got in. And Jesus goes there because there's just a multitude gathered there laying around on these five porches waiting for the water to move. It's fascinating to me, though, probably as fascinating to you, among all the multitude gathered on these five porches at that pool that Jesus speaks to one of them. And in the speaking to just this one, we find the purpose of John relating this story. We learn first that Jesus is very personal in the offering of his mercy. Out of all, why one? And folks, truly, when you were born again, all of us can remember the very personal way in which Jesus, by the Spirit of God, ministered salvation to your heart in that moment. Quite frankly, that's in large part what made you feel so amazed the moment of your conversion. You might have thought like I did as a boy, all this mercy, all this love and forgiveness offered to just me like, like right now? Like God has time to just talk to me? Doesn't he have more important things to do? But he does speak to us. He did speak to you in the moment of your conversion. By grace you believed. You turned from your sin and your sin sickness and you fully entrusted your soul to his eternal keeping and you surrendered and bowed your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ and he changed you in that very personal divine moment didn't he he did right Amen. well Jesus is very personal with this man he's offering mercy and it's an active offer and it remains active through the whole text and really to Jewish unbelief throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. And so he asks the man, do you want to get better? Now when you read that with me this morning or you've read that before, you might say, what in the world kind of question is that? Isn't it obvious he wants to get better? Well, Jesus is taking a personal interest in him. This guy's been sick for 38 years. We understand from the text, for most of those years, somehow, he's been brought to and carried to this pool day after day, but then the people who bring him don't remain with him throughout the day to help him get into the pool when the waters bubble and stir. <coughs> So Jesus initiates a conversation. He's active in his offer of mercy. Just like the woman at the well in chapter 4, that Pastor Hobie preached on, Jesus is the conversation starter. This is a simple but profound truth for all of us. So I'll just stop there. 
and I'll say it again for all who are listening. Jesus, with this man, who remains in unbelief, as with the Samaritan woman who comes to belief and faith in Christ, he begins the conversation. Jesus is not siloed in his obedience. He's active, and it requires offering this woman and this man spiritual and physical healing. He's offering something that is a gift of his own mercy and his own grace. Can you remember with me back to John 4? Jesus' conversation starter with this woman was not, are you with me? It was not, and this is, this is a master class from Jesus on how to witness. Are you ready? He doesn't dive in and talk about her sin first. We got to talk about sin if someone's going to get born again. Jesus didn't. He did, but he didn't at first. He's a conversation starter. He starts a relationship because he's merciful. You walk up to any stranger on the street, right, or anyone in line at Walmart, and you say, hey, you got booze on your breath. You always drunk like that? That conversation's going to go well, isn't it? <laughs> right? No one talks like that. But some believers do with unbelievers. They'll attack the sin first and not even care about the relationship. That's the antithesis of the way Jesus did it. Believe me, if you develop the relationship first and they know you're going to love them whether they get saved or not, I guarantee you the topic of sin will come up. You don't have to worry about compromise. It'll come up. Because they know you love them and they need the help. Nonetheless, I think it's a profound, simple thing to realize here. Jesus was the conversation and relationship initiator. So in a world that's growing increasingly private and privatized and steeped in its sin, we need to realize that Jesus made himself available to the lost and began the relationship. So I would say to all of you as your pastor, please don't ever think that you can confront someone you don't have a relationship with their sin until you have a relationship with them. God's not called you to do that. He didn't even call his son to do that. But it always came to a conversation about that, didn't it? I hope everyone in the room is hearing me this morning. Exponentially jumping forward because he is God in human flesh, Jesus says, get up, pack up, and get out. That's what the grammar says. Get up, pack up your pallet, three different commands, and get going. Walk. As Jesus' words contained the same power as they did the week of creation, when he spoke all things we see into existence, he speaks, and while lying on his pallet, the man realizes his body in a moment has developed strong, mature muscles. 
His lungs were breathing freely. His heart is without arrhythmia. His mind begins to think lucidly. In a moment, he's made completely whole from his chronic illness. That's what God's power does. The power of his word. This man who's been sick for 38 years is walking away looking like he'd been to a gym five times a week for 38 years. God in Christ is always active to give good gifts. Please hang on with me. We know this. James chapter 1 says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, the God of creation. The sick man has received the best gift of his life to that time. Paul taught the Romans that it's the goodness of God that is given to everybody. Remember, the mercy of God is extended to both the saved and the unsaved. In order to bring unbelief to repentance and faith in Christ. So every good thing that our creator gives us and every good thing that we have gifted to us by him before we're saved is given to us to draw our eyes heavenward. So we see our desperate need for Christ, the perfect law keeper, as we are lawbreakers. So in addition to initiating a relationship, giving the good gift of health, Jesus' mercy is extended by offering this man an opportunity to explore who this man is that just healed him. I mean, no one to that time in history had someone walk up to them and command them to get up and pick up and walk, and all of a sudden they were completely healthy. Jesus is giving this man an opportunity to explore the giver and the why of the gift. But he doesn't. Jesus is just merciful to all men and especially here, unbelief. And this is where we need to move on. But for now, we're amazed amazed with the mercy of Christ and we're aghast with the unbelief of the recipient of the miraculous healing power of Christ in his life. But folks, isn't this how we are with so much unbelief around us today? Aren't your hearts grieved and fearful for people who we run with, live by, work with. They've all received so much good at the hand of God, their creator, and they remain needing more in life to satisfy them instead of considering their creator and all the good that he has given them and ensuing trust in his mercy and his person for salvation. Pastor Kent always remind us that if we're struggling as believers, we're probably drowning in a sea of God's goodness. God is so good. He's good to all men. And everything they have just never seems to be enough. 
so they remain unsettled in their hearts, manufacturing their own faith system to save themselves. But Jesus remains merciful, and all religious unbelief remains merciless. That's simply our second point this morning, the mercy of Jesus and the merciless nature of religious unbelief. When I was a little boy, uh, Baptist Christian School, um, back in the day, was having a school musical, and it was Fiddler on the Roof. When I was a little boy growing into junior high semi-manhood, I was interested in sports, not musicals. But my parents had been invited by their friends, the Teskies, to go see Fiddler on the Roof. And I was dragged along. But I found myself pretty charmed by the musical. So much so, and I encourage you to watch it, it's fun. For those of you that don't know, it's a Jewish musical. One of the main speakers says this, a fiddler on the roof sounds crazy, no? But in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? We stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word, tradition. He goes on to say, because of traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything, how to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear our clothes. And for instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. And this shows our constant devotion to God. And you may ask, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you, I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Many religions are steeped in traditions. I'm the last person, and listen to me carefully, I'm not trying to split fiber optics, but we need to listen carefully. I'm the last person to undermine the traditions of any one culture or people group. Quality traditions are so valuable and necessary to family culture. We all have them and we all enjoy them. In our context this morning, though, the religious leaders that are enraged hold to their extra biblical traditions because in the doing of them they find salvation value one of the jewish traditions was keeping the sabbath day that's part of the mosaic law we know that don't we exodus 20 jesus kept the sabbath day he's the lord of the sabbath he kept the law of moses perfectly his whole life he would be obedient to it all the way to his death on the cross. But what we know is that the Jewish religious leaders had added 39 different expectations to how the Sabbath was to be observed. 39. 
Honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy according to Moses simply meant that no one could work on that day for the purpose of commerce, period. Everything the Jewish leaders criticized Jesus and his disciples for doing on the Sabbath were criticisms of, of their own 39 additions to the Sabbath law of Moses. Over the next three chapters, John chapter 5, 6, and 7, that we'll study together, we'll see a growing opposition and actual hatred for Jesus and his person over work related issues these 39 editions by the Jewish religious unbelief sect in the city on the Sabbath the latter part of verse 9 as we read this morning we find this man that's healed carrying a pallet and they confront him because he's defying one of those 39 editions you're not allowed to carry your pallet, the law says. And Jesus knows the law, and he knows that's not true. And in verse 13, when they confront him as to who had told him to violate the Sabbath according to their rules, he has no idea who healed him, because he had no desire to investigate that merciful act brought upon him. So in the Jewish religious mind, you need to understand this. We all do. Worse is the person who encourages defiance to their additions than the violator himself. So they don't tell the man to obey their interpretation of Sabbath law. They turn their fury to finding and persecuting the man who incited the rebellion, Jesus himself. And persecute, my friends, they did. You can read in John 8, John 10, John 11, Matthew 12, Mark 12, other related texts in the synoptics in Luke and Mark. That Jesus is called by this religious sect a demon. So they've taken these 39 additions to the Mosaic law and they've weaponized them against God in flesh, Jesus, they demonize him, a son of Satan. They seek to seize him multiple times, but God knows, the Spirit of God knows it's not Christ's time to die yet, so the Spirit of God withholds their efforts to seize him. Multiple times they have plots to not just seize him, but to kill him. When he heals the withered man, the withered hand of that sweet man on the Sabbath day, the Jews sought to destroy him. Still more passages remain regarding the adherence to traditions added to the law of Moses by religious leaders. And if these traditions that are brought to the level of the authority of scriptures are not adhered to, then there will be consequences, deadly ones. These people don't play around. Religious unbelief has never played around, no matter how nice it is in your face. In the end of the day, someone's going to live and someone's got to die. But Jesus remains merciful in the face of their mercilessness. 
Religious unbelief is radically consumed with finding, persecuting, and canceling out of its written environment true, compassionate, merciful Jesus and his people who are like him. We're seeing it come from just every religious unbelieving angle, even in our time. True historic legalism is always on the hunt to hurt, to condemn, to cancel, just as its embittered counterpart is. Jesus and Christ-likeness is always initiating relationships in a merciful fashion to share the love and forgiveness of Christ and offer his peace in the face of this onslaught. There's no other analysis that so clearly defines religious belief or unbelief. Remember what we pondered last week. Jesus' love didn't create space between him and unbelief. Unbelief created the space after being offered merciful saving grace from a compassionate Jesus. Genuine saving faith lives holy and loves mercifully. I wish we could say that together. Genuine saving faith lives holy and loves mercifully. Religious, religious legalism can't do either. D.A. Carson said this of religious unbelief. There are none so blind as those who are always certain that they can see. I wish that the news of this passage gets better, but as we close, we've got to visit this healed man briefly. We've looked at the merciful love of Christ, the merciless reaction of unbelief of the religious kind. And now let's look at the mindless actions of a healed man. Verses 14 to 16 we've already read. You may ask, why use the word mindless? Well, that's a good question. I guess I could use the words mind-numbing because the response of the healed man is just bewildering. We know from the word of God that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's heard from the very word of God. Hearing implies understanding. Understanding implies an intellectual comprehension of the good news. It's standing before him in flesh. The mercy of God has been offered and demonstrated to the sick now healed man in a most powerful declaration. In a moment, with the power of a spoken word, Jesus had reversed the effects of this man's ill health. Yet the healed man's mind wasn't engaged as to what had happened to him. This is how self-absorbed unbelief can be. Do you remember Judas? The disciple that betrayed Jesus for money? Think of all that Judas had seen and heard Jesus do and say. Thousands of divine works and words performed by and spoken by God in flesh himself, Jesus Christ, and Judas gives it all away for 30 pieces of silver. While Judas betrays Jesus for money, we discover in our passage today that the healed man betrays Christ for safety. Jesus later finds the man in the temple and mentions it looks like he's enjoying his new found health. 
See this in verse 14. Jesus said to him, behold, you've become well. How's it going for you? And I'm sure he replies with why, yes, it's going quite well. All is good. He doesn't say thank you. He's not moved by Jesus's mercy still. He looks in the face of God and just says, I'm cool. I'm good. Thank you very much. Then Jesus says something to him that opens up his eyes to who he is because Jesus never tells this man his name. He says to him, as you go live, just don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Okay, now he's made an exclusive claim. He knows he's a sinner. And the grammar tells us here that Jesus knew that his sickness of 38 years was because of one sin that he had committed over 38 years ago. Because Jesus knows all. And so this man knows that divinity has just jumped into his past because he knew his past and he was going to confront what needed to be confronted in order for this man to come to saving faith. But he did so very mercifully. Just be careful. Don't sin like that again, but you might find yourself for the next 38 years back by the pool. Jesus is calling this man to repentance. Only after Jesus has built a relationship and granted him a gift. So it's fascinating to me. It takes a warning to the man of judgment to come that actually wakes this man up as to who Jesus is. Most commentators say it's not only sick and remain back for the next 38 years if you sin again, but most people say that Jesus was actually saying something worse is going to happen to you than sitting by a pool ill for 38 years. Eternal condemnation is much worse than 38 years ill by a pool. So this man proves to be an unbelieving coward. He runs immediately to the Jews, knowing now who Jesus is without having been told his name because he exposed his sin of his past. And in verse 15, he finds the Jewish people and he throws Jesus under the bus to save his own life because they knew that they were out for him to take his. And verse 16 says, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Doing what things? They were violating their 39 editions, or at least one of them. And when persecuted by the religious leaders, Jesus says in verse 17, and we'll use 16 and 17 as a segue into next Sunday morning. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. My father is Lord of the Sabbath. I am his physical demonstration of perfect Sabbath obedience. Learn from my example. I'm not the lawbreaker. You are. And I love you. You can cross-reference John chapter 9, verses 1 through 35. Another man healed on the Sabbath, a blind man. And look at his tender response to mercy, because it's the antithesis of this man's response and unbelief. It's a beautiful picture. The Jewish people, the Jewish religious leaders attack him. Then they go and they attack his parents, and for fear of being kicked out of the synagogue, 
they just say, go find my son. He'll tell you who he is. So they find his, their son again. And he says, well, only God could do what this man did Amen. to heal me. And the text says, and they kicked him out. Right? So what do we learn from this text? Jesus is so merciful. We've established that. Could I ask you to remain just as merciful and kind and compassionate with unbelief? Trust me. You'll get to the conversation about their sin. But if you build a relationship properly, at least they'll listen to you. Can I also remind you that there's only 120 people in the upper room at Christ's ascension? And Christ appeared to 500 people after his resurrection. Remember what John said at the end of the gospel? So many signs and wonders and words that Jesus spoke that all the volumes of the world could not contain them. Jesus had healed tens of thousands and spoken to tens of thousands and 620 people are identified as followers at the end of it all. Do you understand that most people Jesus healed responded like this man in this story? They never believed. They followed him for the marvel of it all, but they never surrendered their hearts to him. And so I ask you here this morning, we know each other well, but is there anyone here that's following the marvel of who Jesus is? The wonder of all the spectacular things that he's done and even doing among us and you've never turned your heart over to him. Remember we said you've never trusted your life to Jesus until he changes the way you live. We live unto holiness. We live counterculturally to all that our world is in sin. As we walk in him. Let's pray together. Yes, narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting and few there be that find it. I hope you're on that narrow way. And if you're on that narrow way, can I just simply conclude by saying this? If you're on that narrow way and you're spirit-filled, you will be a merciful person with unbelief. You will be. I have grown up in Christianity all my life. I've been in this church for 51 years. And trust me, I've seen plenty of merciless Christians. And looking back, they spoke mercilessly with right words. That's wrong. Jesus is just merciful. He's just kind. He's compassionate. He's immutably so. But he's also immutably God. He's just. He's holy. He paid for your sin. You need to turn from that sin and place your trust in him and then become like him, mercifully like him, whether you're dealing with belief or unbelief. The hallmark, the dispositional hallmark of a believer is what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll see the kingdom of heaven. Some of you have some sin to confess before the Lord because you've been emotionally merciless with unbelief 
and sometimes even with belief. I hope you do that this morning. Get right with God and then go get right with man. as we live Christ among us and in our community. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simplicity of your word. We're so thankful that your mercies are renewed to us every morning. And great is your faithfulness unto us who don't deserve it. Thank you for withholding us from us that which we do deserve in Christ. And Lord, may we extend that mercy to our unbelieving friends who still stand satisfied with religion or self. And may they see Jesus' mercy extended through us and be overwhelmed by it in and by the Holy Spirit that we may see our friends come to know him. In Christ's name.